Hello and welcome to today's extended Hong Kong Heritage Special, where I'm taking a look back at some of the people I've talked to over the past 25 years. And I'll do a few more through the rest of the year, as there's plenty of fodder. So this really is a random dip into the archives to provide a varied selection for your listening pleasure on this Easter weekend. I took over the programme in March 1998 from my predecessor Fiona Holland when she left Hong Kong. But she wasn't the first presenter. The programme had been created a few years earlier and was presented by RTHK's Chris Hilton. It was then 15 minutes and I understand from others that Chris would invite his interviewees into the studio to talk on a subject related to heritage. I do some studio-based interviews, but like Fiona, most of mine over the years have been out and about or going to visit the people I'm interviewing in their homes and offices. Ah yes, the theme tune. This is from a Chinese music CD called T. Listeners are divided. I was told that the initial tones, that whistle as they called it, was a bit sharp on a Saturday morning as people embarked on their first coffee of the day and came round from their slumbers. Well, I'm afraid the signature tune is here to stay. In today's programme, I look back at and include segments from a handful of programmes. So this will include a trip on a tram with my partner in crime, Dr Dan Waters. And if you have a good nose here, you can usually pick up salt fish. Uh, can you smell it? My, oh, my, yes. my nose is not as good as yours. Mine is too old. The bridal laments of white owl women near Fan Ling. The wonderful Manny Vatcher. And in those days, there was water shortage. We used to get four hours of water once in four days. So first, let's hop aboard a tram from Central to Kennedy Town with Dan Waters, who came here from Britain in 1954. Here he is at 90 years old, so this programme is from 2011, and a past president of the Royal Asiatic Society. Dan married Vera Chan, who was the first woman manager at Standard Chartered Bank here, and also ran a school for beauty and etiquette. Dan came from five generations of builders. It started, in fact, the trams here started rolling in uh, uh, 1904, and they tried to get them earlier. Oh, by the way, we mustn't miss that. This building here, by the way, you know, is Western Market. It's a lovely old ribbed brickwork building. And it's on the lines of um, the uh, market in, in, in London, Covent Garden. And it's period shopping, in other words. You've been in there, haven't you? You yes, know it yes. very well. And they have a lot of shops which sell material. And also they have restaurants and I thoroughly enjoy going there. They have some beautiful arches. That was built, that was completed in 1906, and it's the northern block is left. Along Connaught Road, along there, uh, there used to be in the 50s and 60s a lot of very low-class boarding houses. Now, those boarding houses, uh, in the evening and at night, a lot of middle-aged women would uh, street walk outside and they would take their clients inside into these boarding houses. They were there until, oh, late 60s, early 70s, something like that. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm, I'm telling you this because when the Japanese attacked, about three weeks after, they took possession 
and there was um, hostilities had finished, then there was a notice went round, and that notice was that all Europeans had to assemble in the Murray Parade Ground. Where was the Murray Parade Ground? Well, it is where Cheongong Centre is now, and they had to assemble there, and they were then marched to those boarding houses, and they were kept in those boarding houses, women and children and people like that, kept in those boarding houses for five or six days to humiliate them, in other words, being kept in what had been brothels. And then, of course, afterwards, they were moved over uh, by transport in trucks. They were moved to Stanley Prison. They were moved to Stanley Prison. Well, it's early morning. It's a bit of a dull morning, actually. Uh, we decided to take an early tram at seven in the morning just to avoid the crowds, but we've had quite a rainstorm overnight, so still it seems almost as if the lights are just coming on in the shops. We're heading into Devo Road West now. That's right, we're heading into Devo Road West. A lot of the shops are not open uh, so early, and if you have a good nose here, you can usually pick up salt fish. Uh, can you smell it? My, oh, my, yes. my nose is not as good as yours. Mine is too old. But anyway, Vera's grandfather had... So your wife, Vera? My wife, Vera, her, her grandfather had a salt fish shop. And they were lucky in many respects because they were here right through the war, right through the occupation, and they could use salt fish for trading and getting other forms. They could use it for barter and get other forms of food. Now where we are in Devo Road West with a lot of these dry food shops as you mentioned the salted fish uh, these ha have they changed in any way since when you knew them no, in the 50s? They are remarkably similar to what they were like when I first came here. Uh, Vera used to live down here at one stage when she was a child. So is this where you did your courting? To, to some extent yes. Now some of these buildings of course have changed they've gone way higher but we do occasionally see the uh, the odd traditional shop house yes uh, there used to be a street further down here almost every single building was a sh old Chinese style shop house you know where the house over the top projects right over the pavement but I'm sorry but the whole lot have been pulled down there isn't one of them left now it's very disappointing and also on a rainy day like today, it also affords you absolutely no protection on the pavement. That's right. And this style, of course, has spread, and you also see them in Southeast Asia in other places as well. You see them in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur and other places like that. Now, there is a, used to be an interesting shop along here, opposite the police station, which was built in the late 1950s, and uh, it's still in Devil Road West. But they used to have in the window for example, they specialise in curing Hong Kong foot. Hong Kong foot? Yes, uh, which is athlete's foot in other words. And also on the top of that, uh, they also had in the window a jar of pickled piles, I can remember, hemorrhoids, you know. Oh God! <laughs> Al alcohol. <laughs> But I think pickled piles. They, they, I, goodness, though, there was a display to show that Chinese are troubled with piles quite a bit, and to show that that was a good place to go for treatment for piles. <laughs> but it's no longer there. I looked for it the other day. They, don't, they haven't got the uh, pickled piles, the jar of alcohol with the piles of which you've been cut out. They're not there anymore. No. <laughs> 
Pickled piles, perhaps one of the more memorable quotes on Hong Kong heritage. Dan Waters there, he passed away at the age of 95 in 2016. And I rejoined Dan on the tram a little later in the programme. Hong Kong's toy industry had humble beginnings, but with the advent of the plastic moulding machine and the manufacturing base here, it just took off. I can remember, as a child in England, having toys that were made in Hong Kong. In 2011, I talked with three toy manufacturers, LT Lam, David Chu and Angela Gardner, along with journalist Sarah Monks, who interviewed more than 100 people in the toy business for her book, Toy Town. LT Lam began his working life selling magazines on the streets of Central. It was while reading one that he came across that magic word, plastics. And that was the first moment I thought I fell in love with plastics. For one year, I quit the job and joined a chemical firm, which also sells plastic material. I got a chance to convince my boss to go into producing plastic products. Why did you recognize, I mean, obviously plastic was this post-war miracle material, but why, why wait, did wait, you... Good question. Well, I found out plastics is a beautiful material. They are so colorful, you know. And I, I thought, you know, after the war, the whole world is dark. Uh, no color, you know, no, no happy faces. So I thought making something in colorful materials would be good, you know. So then we, my boss decided to go into the business. And first we make uh, items from just plastic sheets like Perspex to make picture frames, table signboards and things. Then in one year's time, in, nine, in 1947, we started a very, very uh, basic called injection molding factory using four employees and two half-ounce capacity injection molding machines through injection molding of toys. That was the beginning. Yeah. So, in fact, our toy manufacturing uh, actually started in 1948. Then we go to trading firms holding the sample to tell them, well, we have toys like this. Can you sell for us? What kind of toys did you have at that stage? Well, my first toy was a little duck. That was the beginning. And we make other simple toys like whistles, you know, and uh, young girls' uh, hair slice, hair clips, yeah, little combs, plastic spoons and little bowls for babies, you know. Uh, all these, um, but that sells because of the colors. I'm David Chu, all right. My company is called Thailand Industrial Company. Uh, company was started by my father in 1949 in Hong Kong, and actually in Kowloon. And uh, at that time, it, it was the first uh, toy factory or plastic factory set up in Kowloon side. There are quite a few on the Hong Kong side, uh, but we're proud to say we explore all the way into Kowloon uh, and uh, obviously it started very small and uh, my father used to work in a metal factory uh, making a watch band right? and then he always liked to set up his own factory and, uh, and the first business that he went to 
was to sell, you know, small cups uh, for the people to put in the uh, uh, when they worship their ancestors and whatever their cups uh, for putting some wine in. All right, and uh, my father had uh, uh, write uh, wrote very good calligraphy, so you he bought the cup from somebody else and then write the calligraphy there. You know, like uh, good fortune, you know, good luck, that kind of words. Uh, and and then then he 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 started to get some business, but later on he find out that you know uh, the people that are making the plastic is making more money than him. Oh, he tried to find ways and uh, bought some machine and then start the first factory. Uh, and then obviously, you know, the LT, at those days, uh, LT is lucky that he had uh, education in Hong Kong and speak good English. But my father uh, actually had to learn Cantonese at the time. Yeah. He was from Chiu Chow. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I don't think he can uh, learn two languages at one time. So he have to go to uh, trading companies and like LT and say, can you sell uh, these uh, items for us? And then also uh, guided by the uh, trading company and slowly and to uh, what customers are looking for. And then uh, slowly we start to make toys. My name's Angela Gardner and I run my own toy company today called Castle Spring Enterprises Limited. I am the second generation. It was my father who was the pioneer. My father's name is Frank Gardner, and he was not in the toy business, but he happened to have lent somebody money, and the person couldn't repay the money, and he found himself with a plastics factory called Universal Plastics Manufacturing Company. And he didn't really know what to do with this, Fortunately, he had a brother-in-law in the toy business in America, and he said, Frank, make toys. <laughs> so that's how he got into the business. He changed the name of the factory in English to um, Plastic Manufacturing Corporation, better known as PMC, but he never changed the Chinese name, which is still Wan Kao Sokao Chong, which means Universal Plastic Manufacturing. Born in Karachi in 1930, Mani Vatcha is a Parsi who came with her family to Hong Kong in the 1960s in the middle of water shortages and bomb threats. She worked here as an accountant, but is also a big cricket fan. And so, very happily, our interview took place at her second home, the Kowloon Cricket Club. Well, my husband came in late 66, and about six months later, I joined him in 67 with the children. That was an interesting time to come to Hong Kong. Yeah. 67, my younger twins were two years old and my eldest was 10. And uh, the middle one was five years old. And in those days, there was water shortage. We used to get four hours of water once in four days. And we had to manage with the family. And we had to store up the water in bathtubs and whatnot. And, and water containers, tubs and things like that were at, at a premium. <laughs> yes, I would imagine the place sold out, yeah. you know. Yeah, they were all sold out. Apart from that, we used to have the bomb scare. You know, parcels used to be left in parks and roads and things like that. And the specialists had to come and detonate them. Some would be real bombs and the others would be fake, you know. 
but all the same we had to be so careful about our children playing in the public parks and all that must have been very worrying very worrying very worrying yes, uh, although there was many places where we could take the children we used to avoid and just bring them over to KCC to the Kowloon Cricket Club yeah the Kowloon yes that's, that's where we're sitting today so this is really really your second home for decades <laughs> yeah yes if you wanted to go to Hong Kong side you had to take star ferry or you take your car and go across from Yamati to at the moment where Macau Ferry Pier is somewhere in that vicinity would be the Hong Kong side terminus so we would go by the car ferry car ferry would stop at about 1:30 or something in the night and star ferry would about 11 so if we went out on Hong Kong side on a night out we had to return and in those days when we went on a night out we really dressed up you know it was no casual you know night out means you know either wearing a nice gown and you know dolling yourself up <laughs> or we used to wear sarees and all that stiletto heels and then we would have to come back by the wala walas and the wala walas from across uh, from hong kong side um, city hall there was a pier i can't remember the name of the pier from there we had to walk down the stone steps and all that and get into those wala wala launches and we'd come across on hong kong side where the clock tower is the other side of it you know because all that used to be the railway station and all so we'd get down there so that was the only mode of transport or spend the night with your friends in hong kong <laughs> so home on the wala wala in your stilettos yeah <laughs> so that used to be quite adventurous and where would you go out well, we used to go out to different places you know for dinners and dancing most of the places used to have band and all one place used to be called bistro godown which was a building next to hong kong club so it was a big band big band swing music or well, it wasn't a very big band either a quartet or a quintet or something like that but it would be live band they used to have at china fleet club they used to have the molly's music hall which would be like a review So a review of music hall numbers or numbers actually that were in the 60s and 70s. Well, it used to be a mixture of everything, you know, the old tunes and all that also. I was lucky in the sense that we had a Chinese ama who was working for us, who was English speaking. And in those days there were no restrictions about bringing domestic helpers, so the girl who was working for us in india we came from bombay so the girl who was working for us in bombay i asked her if she would like to come along with us so when i joined my husband with the children we sailed out so she came along with me and she served me for 3 years and then she went back by that time the children were a bit grown up and uh, we were able to get someone else again from india so i always had one chinese ama and one one indian ama what made you decide to come to hong kong well we got married in 1956 at that time after independence in india nehru had all those five year plans the singh and movement was very restricted to go out of india to travel you had to get foreign exchange 
and the reserve bank would give you a very limited amount of money and my husband's background his grandfather maternal grandfather was originally from persia from tehran and he had moved to shanghai for trade purposes and they had silk mills and all that so when my husband was about 9 10 years old after his confirmation ceremony what we parsis call naujot ceremony the mother took him to shanghai to meet the grandparents at that time my husband's grandfather was very ill almost on his deathbed and the war broke out and the japanese joined the war in 1941 so everybody said kiri go back to india to your family because this is the last sailing to india there won't be any more sailings so she refused she says china you know china japan was going on for so many years and all that nothing you know so i'm not going leaving my father on his deathbed and that was the last sailing and they were stuck till end of the war in shanghai so my husband's formative years were in shanghai so his outlook was quite different from children who grew up in india with the result that when all these restrictions came he was very uneasy so he wanted to get out of india but he wanted to go to a place where there was cricket <laughs> because he always used to tease me to say cricket is my first love my second love <laughs> is my wife and the third love is my car <laughs> The delightful manivacha there. Michael Wright was born on the peak in 1912 and lived until the age of 105. He trained as an architect and after the Second World War was key in creating Hong Kong's public housing. I spent two afternoons with him a few months before he died and this was at his home in London as we sat at his table drinking tea and going through his photo albums. We'd agreed two hours. He gave me three each time. This is a segment about Michael's childhood. We used to have lunch picnics. Families would group together and hire a lunch and go off to the Stone Cottage which was an island off the coast of Kowloon and that was the easy one then on real special occasions we went round the coast to Big Wave Bay, Chico. They were full day expeditions, but the swimming at Stone Cottage was almost every week. You know, after school we'd go down and the mums and dads would come from the office. And then the evening go off to Stone Castles and to do the swimming, and this was very, very popular. So you had armors looking after you as babies. One armor, they were very, very faithful, and um, I think she stayed with us. We had four children, and I think she was with us the whole time. Our maid Jay. It was really a profession among the Chinese. Then they were always dressed the same way with their black trousers and and white tunics. And what you used to go with them to Magazine Gap Road? Well, up to Magazine Gap, yes, so up up the road to walk up Coombe Road. Then they had the, the stone seat where the armors would perch themselves, three or four of them, and the children would just play in the road. And what was your address? Five two eight the peak. Now you've also got some photographs of you as children during the First World War. You would have a tent in the garden with your brother, yeah, oh, yeah, with your brother oh, Dennis. All these tents, yes, we always dressed up as, as soldiers. Spent a lot of time dressed up as soldiers. So, yeah. what would you hear? I mean, it's very young and very early memories. Yeah. But what would you hear about the war? 
Um, I remember my uncle, who's in one of these photographs, going off to war, must have been about 1916, 1917. I remember seeing him off on a ship. He was in Hong Kong, Singapore, Royal Artillery, and he was going off to the Middle East. I remember waving to him on the ship as he was going out of the harbour, and so he didn't survive the war. He was killed soon after he got to the Middle East. And this is my main memory of, of the war, and I was hearing about his death. But as far as the war in Hong Kong was concerned, say, there was um, quite a lot of military activity, I think, because of the prison camps there, the internment camps. Who were the internment camps for? Mainly for German sailors, the merchantmen, not regular sailors, a lot of merchant ships all got interned in Hong Kong, and the volunteers provided the guard. Local historian Dr Dan Waters and I are travelling along on a tram today. The trams were built or started here in Hong Kong in 1904. Uh, we're just heading off down Devo Road West, so we're heading from Central on to Kennedy Town on a trip where we're just looking down at the street, well, just to see what we can see. We came along there past the department stores. The, the era of the department store seems to have died down a bit now. Daimaru came here in the 60s in uh, Causeway Bay, packed up, Japanese department store. Uh, Soi Hing was another department store packed up. The Sun department store is packed up. But Sincere and Wing On seems to be doing quite good business. So back in 1954, when you first arrived, were any of these kind of wing-on, sincere Daimaru, were any of those already existing? Oh, yes. Yes. There were four large department stores. And the wing-on, sincere, the Sud, there was another one. Uh, and uh, they did very good business. And they were the place to go. Many people went there. But there were no shopping malls in those days, of course. And there were no supermarkets when I came. Now, we're getting down well now. Now here, there used to be two very large restaurants there. This is uh, Sek Tong Joy. Sek Tong Joy. Sek, sek means stone. Tong means pool. Joy means mouth. It's a sort of a big stone promontory. But on the other hand, it's disappeared. It's no longer here. But you know, getting down here, they've tried to do something. There are quite a number of small parks here in uh, Western District and in uh, Kennedy Town, quite a number. But I went there, I can remember going there years ago to uh, those two big restaurants. There was the Guangzhou and there was the Gumling. And I went there, I can remember, in this July of 1955, because it was the building contractor's uh, special dinner to recognize the uh, patron saint of building. Luban, Luban, seafood done, in other words. And uh, they always had a very big dinner every year, and they still do. So the patron saint of building? Uh, so, uh, so he's a god or he's a saint? Uh, well, he was a patron god, Chinese god of building. And uh, we had a very big dinner, and of course we paid homage to Luban at the start of the dinner by three bows to his photograph, etc., etc. So he had a photograph? Uh, yes, they have a photograph. In fact, further down here in Kennedy Town, up the hill, there is the uh, temple there. And on his birthday, they go there every year. That takes place about in July, sometime in July. So what does Loban mean? Loban, that's the name. And uh, he was the uh, inventor of a kite that could take a man up to the sky 
Uh, he, ha- he invented various carpentry tools and things like that. So he existed? Supposed to have existed. He was supposed to have existed as a real person uh, before he died, and then he was made a deity. And uh, as I say, he's still worshipped today. Uh, he is about 500 years BC. Uh, he's more or less in the era of Confucius. And so before concrete? Oh, yes. Uh, cement came in when? Cement came in <laughs> in uh, something like uh, uh, 1830, something like 1824. We've talked before about bamboo scaffolders. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is this, you know, so this is the, the deity for, for bricklayers, for... Yes, for, for the four, they talk about four trades in building. Carpentry, the wet trades such as bricklaying, plastering, there's painting and there's plumbing, you know. They talk of the four trades. And he is a patron saint and also for, for what do you call it, for bamboo scaffolders as well. He's also their patron saint. I'm just walking down a gravel path here at Maipo Nature Reserve along with Dr Lou Young, manager of the reserve. We've got fish ponds on either side, it's a lovely day, but in the distance you can see the developments both on the New Territory side and Shenzhen. Dr Young, has this always been an area with fish ponds or say a hundred years ago did it look a little bit different? Well, no, I mean, in fact, 100 years ago, all of this um, area would have been in the tidal mangrove forest. So, you know, where we're walking right now would have been water. But gradually, over the years, the original people that used to live here reclaimed the land. Originally, I mean, back in the 1910s, 1920s, there were just a few scattered fishing villages around here. People just lived off um, the fish, the shrimps, the crabs out in Deep Bay. But then gradually, the history of this whole area is very much tied in with the history of China, if you like. Because Maipo is so close to China, um, there's always been a sort of um, coming and going of people from mainland China. And whenever there were any upheavals over in mainland China, there would always be an influx of refugees you know, from Shenzhen coming into Hong Kong. So back in the 1920s, when there were um, civil war going on in China, there was a, you know, an influx of these refugees, and quite often these people were farmers themselves. And these farmers would bring in you know, new techniques, new ideas for farming into this area. And so what used to be mangrove forest here in the 1920s, with that influx of refugees, you know, these people brought with them the idea of rice farming, or brackish water rice farming in particular. And so the people then started reclaiming the mangrove forest for rice farming. So what would they have used here before? Well, much of this area would have been just have been reed beds and mangroves. So they just impounded areas of land, so basically just cut down the mangrove trees, dig channels around a particular area of pond, and then use that mud that they've dug out to, to build the buns. And then they just plant what, what we call red rice in Cantonese Hongmai. And this is a, a salt-tolerant type of rice, since you know, this area is so close um, to, to Deep Bay. The water out here is brackish. So a lot of this area then was turned into rice fields back in the 1920s. Lou Young there. I always mean to get up to my po for the blackface spoonbills that are over during the winter months, so I'll pencil it in in the diary for next year. Waitao is still spoken in some areas of Hong Kong, but it's becoming quite rare. Five years ago, I had the chance to meet a group of elderly Waitao women at Lung Yuk Tao near Fan Ling. 
They're all in their 80s and 90s and were hugely welcoming. Some years ago, a group of social workers began projects with them to keep their culture alive and also to give them a project. One of these was documenting their oral history and a set of songs called Bridal Laments, the songs of anger and grief sung on the seven days before a young woman would leave her village forever, often to marry a man she had never met or perhaps briefly in an arranged marriage. These women are those that married in the 1950s and the 1960s. They're the last of their generation who often couldn't read and write and would never return home with often a hard rural life and too many times an unhappy marriage to follow. Former social worker Jeannie M introduced me to the women. The story of their bridal laments became the documentary Yesterday Once More. So because of the wedding arrangement, it has the matchmaker. The matchmaker is matched two of the families, the families of the girls and boys, to mix them together. So that's a song is about berating the matchmaker because they think that the matchmaker is the one who destroy her own life. So she's come in, mixed in, yeah, said, right, this is the boy for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They will submit to the fact that the life mm. is changed, mm. but they still have the anger. Mm. Berating the matchmaker in the darkness by the railing on the seat of honor you settle accusations i bellow you worship this toxic herb growing on the roadside you nod your head to whatever words sound from your mind you scoop dregs from the bottom of the well you are just the same as a treacherous advisor i'm ashamed and feel wretched that we're part of the same clan otherwise i would have skinned you and broken your bones who do you think you are to sit on high in my home I'm going to snap a bamboo stick to drive you away, you evil person. Who do you think you are to take the seat of honour in my house? Going to snap a willow sprig to drive you away? You come blowing a flute made of reed. Words you say pass from end to end. Talking as you do with my mother on one end and reaching those despicable other people at the other end. Molly O'Dell was born Molly Rubin in 1931 in Baghdad, part of an Iraqi Jewish family. She would move on to Kobe in Japan for her formative years and then to Shanghai, where she spent the Second World War and would often suffer from hunger. Then she came to Hong Kong, where she would meet and marry David O'Dell, the son of Hong Kong's first impresario, Harry O'Dell. Here she describes meeting her future husband, and the wedding at the Peninsula Hotel. Well, we had come to Hong Kong. I was waiting to go to the US to go to school, acting school. I insisted, <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't go, but I promised not to go on the stage. I was lying. And, uh, and so he came, uh, my brother was getting engaged to a Syrian lady, and we didn't know many Jews here. And there were two maiden ladies from Iraq who invited the whole Jewish community. And he came with his parents. And I came out of the bedroom wearing my little yellow evening dress with two bows at the neckline. <laughs> Very silly. And I saw him across the room wiping his hands and I said, uh-uh, he's too good looking, he's not for me. 
And you're 18 at this point? Or? Uh, 17, right. yeah. I, I got engaged, yeah, I was 17. It was June. He proposed, we went rowing in Repulse Bay and we got to know each other and about two weeks later he proposed. Wow. My mother was very much against it because he was Ashkenazi and I was Sephardi. And but time went on and my sister fought for me and convinced my mother to allow me to marry him. And So yeah. you're a Sephardic Jew? Yeah, and he's Ashkenazi and you know, it's so silly. Religion is really ridiculous. And uh, so finally, my mother was convinced that I could marry him and we got married in May at the peninsula. Oh, nice. Tell yeah. me a bit more about that. I presume you'd upgraded from your yellow puffy dress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this time I wore a silk silver brocade dress made by a shop called Pacaret. I still have the dress. And what was it called, the, the shop? Pacaret. Okay, yeah. and what, what nationality was that then? The lady was French. Ah. Yeah. Uh, and was it a short, was it, did you have a veil? Dress. Or? Yeah, I had a veil, a six-yard veil and, and a pearl tiara that I had seen Joan Fontaine wear in a movie magazine. <laughs> Do you know who Joan Fontaine is? Oh, good. Hello. I'd begun to think you'd never call. Damon, you sound so serious. What is it? Oh, well, that is serious. Any special reason? Oh, but Damon, everyone needs help at one time or another. As a matter of fact, I, I was hoping you'd help me. I was hoping you'd take me along with you on your trip to the stars. Oh, if I was taking too much for granted, forgive me, but I was thinking... Oh, no, no, it's it's nothing, but uh, I was thinking this is such an impersonal way to say goodbye. Couldn't we talk about it over a drink? Where are you? Oh, well, if, if you can make it up the elevator, I could make it to the bar. Well, perhaps you're right. This way is so simple and uncomplicated. You just put down the receiver and the line is dead. But, darling, if you change your mind... You actually had the wedding at the peninsula? Or? Wedding at the peninsula, about 400 people. We knew about 100 and his family knew 300. Yes. <laughs> you know, they're old timers. And then we had a dinner in our home. And then I went on my honeymoon to Boulder Lodge that belonged to the Kaduris. Paul Lau is a photographer who lives on Lama and has done a great deal to record in photographic form the traditions and culture of rural communities in mainland China and Hong Kong. Every year at the coastal village of Sokowan on Lama, there's a festival. I love going to these, the villagers getting together, often relatives coming in from abroad, and then the construction of the mat shed for the travelling Cantonese opera, just like it's been for decades. And I enjoy the lack of snobbery. Old ladies with gold earrings yatter to their friends at this community catch-up while the well-known stories are acted and sung on stage. And to the side of the stage is the percussion section. Cantonese opera is uh, very interesting. Uh, the origin is... Actually, Cantonese opera is very young, about uh, maybe 100 years ago. Uh, they, they don't even speak Cantonese. Uh, the origin is uh, the northern dialects. So the, the opera form was from the northern China. And then after some time, they 
changed into Cantonese just uh, about a uh, hundred years old. But uh, because uh, because uh, Cantonese are very open to outside, and the music are very uh, adaptive, they borrow many different kind of. Uh, Western uh, uh, musical instrument, as now you can see today, you might see a uh, violin, you might see I think uh, some some wind instrument also from from the West. Why do you enjoy coming? Well, uh, Hong Kong is very rich uh, in intangible cultural heritage. My my earlier uh, specialty is uh, in Chinese ethnic minorities, but uh, at that time I I always travel far away and, and didn't aware of that uh, Hong Kong has so many many uh, hidden uh, hidden for me. I mean, hidden uh, cultural heritage. And then uh, after some time uh, in recent year, I dis discovered this very, very special things among our different groups of people. My, I, myself is from an uh, immigrant family, very urbanized. Some, some uh, about five million of us, I think, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, immigrants are very much urbanized. So uh, among us, we, we don't have too much uh, heritage. But looking into uh, the villages in uh, New Territories, they have uh, history as long as 1,000 years. And looking at fishing communities like, uh, like our Lama Island, Sokuan, or other fishing communities, there are many, many different uh, heritage. Also, uh, Part of the immigrants, uh, mainly the Chiu mainly the Hotlo speaking people, they brought their culture, their heritage from from their hometown, hometown. and they still perform their uh, uh, traditional uh, heritage in Hong Kong. So the, we are very lucky to have very huge uh, diversity of heritage in Hong Kong. Paul Lau there. It's 50 years this year since the tragic death of Bruce Lee in 1973. Andre Morgan was just 20 years old when he came to Hong Kong, where he went to movie company Golden Harvest and where he got to know Bruce Lee in the last year of his life as he worked for him as his assistant. Yes, I was involved with Bruce Lee from the time I got to Hong Kong in June of 1972 until he passed away the following June of 1973. I was only 20 years old, so it was all a very wonderful and young, exciting experience for me as somebody that was learning my way in the film business. And at the same time, Golden Harvest, the company we both worked for at the time, was a very young and vibrant company. The company was all of 15 months old when I joined. Bruce was already a phenomena here in Hong Kong because his first film, 
uh, Big Boss had set a record at the time for a local action picture. And the second picture he had done, Fist of Fury, had broken that record. So at the time, Bruce Lee was sort of the hottest young rising star in, in Asia. Um, but at the same time, because Bruce had grown up and spent a great portion of his life in the United States, he saw himself as a Hong Kong Chinese with a lot of roots and a lot of relationships in America. So he was as much an American as I was. And so there was immediately a sort of a, uh, a natural simpatico as two Americans working in Hong Kong, albeit in slightly different positions. I was a glorified uh, office boy come translator, and Bruce was already this icon to the to the people of Hong Kong. And Bruce as a person, uh, because he loved life, he, in, he lived every moment of his life to the fullest. And that you see when you see his films, you can see that energy level, you can see that uh, exuberance, the, that love of life. But in his personal life, it was exactly the same. Bruce Lee did not walk into an office. Bruce Lee made an entrance. Bruce Lee didn't walk into the Peninsula Hotel for tea. Bruce Lee entered the hotel. <laughs> Bruce Lee was a star. But he wasn't self-conscious of that. That was just that special quality that certain actors have. Part of the excitement that we were all caught up in was the fact that here he had made two films and those two films had become phenomenal box office successes. So already he was a phenomenon. You have to put it in perspective for Bruce. That was also quite a juxtaposition. A year before, he was sort of a sometimes working but mostly unemployed bit player in Hollywood. He had a, had a small part in one TV series in America and had done a couple of other guest shots. His primary means of income in 1970 and 71 was not as an actor. It was as a martial arts instructor teaching actors how to do martial arts. So his own life was going through this same sort of metamorphosis as his career was taking off. So it was a very heady time to be uh, meeting Bruce Lee and getting to know him. And he had a very good sense of what the common man was, what the common man wanted to see. So when you combine that skill set of being a reasonable actor with phenomenal skills as a martial artist and speed and agility that did set him apart from most other martial artists, put all of that together with a man that was a very handsome man and that common touch, put him in a position where he could pull all of those pieces together and use them to bring the Bruce Lee persona to the screen in some sort of heroic role, that made him very unique. Andre Morgan there. Let's see where Dan is on his tram trip. Okay, okay. Okay, thank you very much. Of course, while we were on the tram, the weather was dry as a bone. Now that we've got off, it's tipping down with rain. But that hasn't deterred us. Uh, we've just walked 10 minutes down from the last tram stop where we got off uh, at Kennedy Town. And uh, Dan has brought me to a monument that I've never known about before. Yes, it's uh, the Dungwa Smallpox Hospital, Infectious Diseases Hospital. You can see it was uh, uh, established in 1910 
And if you look here, there is a stone laid uh, at the time. Uh, 1901 the stone was laid. And if you see, it says here, if we can read it out, the arch and the foundation stone were once part of the Dunghua Smallpox Hospital completed in 1910, not far from this spot. It was just up the hill, as a matter of fact. In 1938, the building became the Government Infectious Diseases Hospital and was demolished after the Second World War because we didn't have so many infectious diseases after the war. I can remember, for example, in 1961, there was a bad outbreak of cholera and uh, several of us had injections but many people were too busy so they set up stalls in the street and there were one either side of the Star Ferry for example no tunnels in those days and people used to roll up their sleep and sleeve and have a jab which gave protection against cholera I can remember the odd occasion of bubonic plague very little now but by and large there was no need for the infectious diseases hospital anymore I think Dan would have enjoyed being the intermittent tram tripper on my programme. We also went to Shaokiwan by tram, by the way. Oh, we did it all. This was just a handful of people who've been on the programme. I'll be doing more throughout the year. It's a huge privilege. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.